So, anger. Anger. We've thought about how it's something that affects each and every one of us. It's something that's going to touch all of our lives. And, and I guess as I was thinking this morning, I guess the question I was going to ask first of is, well, when did you last get angry? It's not, did you last get angry? It's, when did you last get angry? Or perhaps you don't get angry, but when did you last call someone an idiot? Or maybe just by uh, your uh, attitude towards someone, they got that impression that you thought they were an idiot. You were somehow looking down on them. You were dismissing them as a person. And in the passage today, we've got these two things that we read. We've got Jesus talking all about the law. And then we've got this stuff on anger. And the question we have to ask is, you know, why do these two things go together? Some people approach the Sermon on the Mount thinking, well, it's a, just a collection of random sayings. Jesus was going around throwing out these little epithets, these little self-help uh, sort of comments, uh, much like modern self-help writers do today. Um, and we could just pick and choose, and, and you know, everyone knows some of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the, Na- on the Mount. Everyone knows that we should treat others uh, as we expect to be treated ourselves. Uh, everyone knows something about specks in our eye or planks in our eye. Um, but actually, Jesus is doing something much more subtle and much deeper here. This is a very carefully constructed uh, discourse that he's put together. And so if we're to understand what he's getting at when he's talking about anger and how we're going to deal with anger, we need to come back and look at what he's just said about the law. Now he launches this discourse with this, uh, these beatitudes that we looked at uh, last week. Lou helpfully took us through them uh, last week. And It's a series of statements that talk about what it's like to be blessed. And I'm sure we've all been thinking over the last week uh, what that word, to be blessed, uh, means. Uh, And Jesus is actually saying here that these blessings of God are actually available to anyone. Here in Israel, to be blessed it was thought that one had to keep all the laws and the commandments. We read in the Old Testament things like Psalm 119 that, 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 that speaks this way. It says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who work according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. And the Pharisees, the teachers there, had... Um, uh, you know, their big thing was that to find your way to the kingdom of heaven, to experience God's blessing, you had to keep all of these laws and commandments. And Jesus has just come and said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they need God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful Blessed are the pure in heart. And yeah, we're quite comfortable with all those things. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted 
for my sake. Is he saying something different here? Is he saying we no longer have to keep the law because the kingdom is now just available to those who recognize their need for God? That's what some people thought as they heard the Sermon on the Mount, as they were sitting there listening to it. So it must have come as quite a shock when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So one thing Jesus was very clear about, whatever his attitude of the law was, it was not that it had been abolished. He was not abolishing it. Indeed, he was not taking away anything from it. He talks about the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. Actually, what he's talking about is even the little dots and dashes that decorated the Hebrew uh, letters. So Jesus is saying that he's not come to abolish the law. So what is he saying? He's saying he's come to fulfill it. So what precisely does that mean? And what impact does it have on us? And how does it help us think about the question of anger? Well, the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel are are sort of punctuated with this idea of fulfillment. And we heard some of it in the Christmas story. The Gospel here of Matthew's is that Jesus has come to fulfill the prophets. All those prophetic writings that we read in the Old Testament, all those utterances of the prophets, we discover were pointing to Jesus. He was the one who came to fulfill those prophecies. And we're quite comfortable with that idea. But he's saying that what was true of the prophets is also true of God's law. God's law was pointing towards Jesus. He's come to fulfill it. But what does that actually mean in practice? Well, I suggest there are four things that might help us here. First of all, Jesus fulfills the law in and through his teaching. He brings out the real significance of God's commands. The traditional interpretation that the Pharisees took of the law, we will see in a moment, actually weakened it. They thought they were doing their best to fulfill it. Whereas in actual fact, because they'd missed the essence, they'd weakened it. And so, and they weakened it in the way that it lost its power to search the motives of our hearts. So Jesus fulfills the law in and through his teaching. Secondly, he fulfills the law in and through his life. The way he lived. Now, we don't know much about the personal lives of the Pharisees. Scripture doesn't tell us much about the personal lives of the Pharisees. But I would suggest, as we read the Gospels, that there wasn't much joy in their lives. They themselves didn't seem very joyful in keeping the law. And I certainly don't think they made life joyful for others. 
with their demands. In fact, for them, the law was burdensome. It was heavy. It was a, a yoke on, uh, around their necks. But that wasn't so for Jesus. For Jesus, keeping the law, walking perfectly before God, was written on his heart. The law was written on his heart. It was a joy. It was a delight. He said that my food is to do the will of my Father. I get sustenance from it. It's not a burden. It's light. He said, take my yoke upon you, for it is light. Jesus shows the real meaning of the law. It's not burdensome. It's light. And he also shows it in the way he lives his life, keeping the law. He is the only one who is able to keep every single commandment that God has ever uh, set forth. He is without sin. So he fulfills it in his teaching. He fulfills it in his life. And ultimately, he fulfills it in his death. As Jesus goes to the cross, we see the reality of the law's holiness as he bears the penalty for the sin of all mankind. The Old Testament often talks about judgment that comes from a breach of God's law, but it's really only at the cross that we discover the true curse and judgment of what it means to break covenant with God. And as Jesus cries out on the cross, he says, my God, I am forsaken. Why? Why, oh God, am I forsaken? His cry really says to us, this is the penalty of broken law. This is the meaning of God's law. See how terrible its fulfillment is, that separation, that pain of being separated from God. So that's one way in which his death fulfills God's law. His death is also a kind of prism or a lens through which uh, we can see different aspects or components of God's law, moral, ceremonial, civil. Certain elements of the law were actually fulfilled in Jesus in the sense that they were abolished. They were no longer required. The ceremonial law was no longer required because Jesus had offered his sacrifice once and for all. So some of the law was fulfilled in Jesus in that very real way. So Jesus fulfills the law through his teaching. He fulfills it in his life. He fulfills it in his death. And finally, he fulfills it in us, in his disciples. The prophet Jeremiah uh, foretold that one day God would write his law on our hearts. God's law is no longer an external imposition on us because we have a new heart. Because we have a new heart, we desire to obey him. But, and this is quite a big but, I think, 
This does not mean that Jesus abolished the commandments and taught us that all we need is love. Yes, God is love. We are called to love God and love our neighbors. But the question is, what does that mean? Paul in Romans says that to love means to fulfill the law. Jesus may have summarized the law as love God and love your neighbor, as we've heard, but it is just that, a summary. We need to unpack that and obey even the least commandment. And that's where Jesus is going with this discourse. The gospel writer who is most is sometimes known as the, 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 um, uh, the, the disciple of the apostle of love, John, often writes about God's love. And he writes two interesting things in, in chapter 14, chapter 15. He says, or in writing of what Jesus says, Jesus saying just before his death, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And he says, if you obey my commands, you will abide in my love. So is Jesus actually reversing his earlier teaching that we enter the kingdom of heaven through grace? (laughs) No, of course not. Jesus is not being inconsistent. But what he is actually saying, I believe, is that our attitude to God's law is an indicator or a reflection of our attitude to God himself. Our attitude to God's law is an indicator of our attitude to God himself. And Jesus, because that's what he goes on to say. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, referring to the law and the prophets, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, well, we'll come on to that bit in the next bit, the righteousness exceeding the Pharisees. So Jesus is saying that if we keep the law, then we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But if we treat it lightly, if we pick and choose, say, well, I quite like that commandment. I'm not sure about that one, so maybe we'll put that to one side. And if we encourage others to do the same, then we will be called the least. So it's a, if we keep even the least of God's commandments, it becomes a sure mark that we love Christ and belong to his kingdom. So let's be absolutely clear. It's not through keeping the law that we merit salvation. That is a free gift of God for all who will accept it. But if we have been born again, then God's law has been written in our hearts and we will obey it joyfully. If it's not been written in our hearts, we might make a pretense for a while. But one day, the mask will slip. It's like apples and pears. Lou talked about this last week. A good tree produces good fruit. An apple tree produces apples. We know the tree by the fruit it produces. And the same is true of 
the Christian life. So four ways in which Jesus fulfills the law. Through his, in his teaching, in his life, in his death, and then through his disciples, the church. It's the mark of a transformed life. And finally, having already shocked his audience by saying that he hasn't come to abolish the law, he says, finishes this by saying, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This must have been quite devastating to those who were listening. We may have lost something of the impact of it. So here are the Pharisees. You know, they were fastidious in keeping the law. And often the Pharisees were considered the only ones who would actually make the grade in keeping the law. They had 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions. So that's one, thou shalt not do this for each day of the year. Maybe you get a day off in a leap year, who knows. But Jesus is saying that even they don't measure up to the mark by keeping these commandments. So what he's getting at? What's he getting at? Well, we know that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. It's the righteousness of Jesus that comes to us when we repent of our sins, when we turn to him, when we accept his sacrifice for us. It's his righteousness that enables us to be seen as righteous by God. We become righteous because he is righteous. It's not the adherence to the law. But I think when we say that, we actually miss something. I think Jesus is really saying that we really must keep God's law. Even the least commandment, he says. Even the least commandment. So it's not a salvation issue. It doesn't say that those who, uh, uh, those who set aside one of the least of the commandments won't be in the kingdom of heaven. It just says you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. It's about growing in righteousness as we walk with Jesus. So he set this thing up. He said it's about the heart. It's about our attitudes. And now we come back to this question of anger. And this is the first of a series of six examples that Jesus gives of how this change in our attitude to the law works out in practice. As Lou said earlier, anger in and of itself is not the issue. There are some things we should get angry about. We should be angry about injustice. God is angry about injustice. God is angry about the damage that sin causes in our lives and in the world. The issue here is anger directed towards an individual. 
And Jesus equates it with murder. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, this is just a clever rhetorical flourish on Jesus' part, setting up a one extreme against another, taking someone's life, just being angry with them. No, I think the point is, and we know we see this, don't we? Once we start getting angry, it sets something else off with another person. It sets something else off in them, and it quickly escalates. It can turn violent. It can lead to a physical attack. It can lead to murder. It starts in the heart. It starts with our attitude. But it can quickly work its way out in practical ways. Our words are in some ways equivalent to murder. Murder is taking someone's life. Our words can destroy someone's life. If we call them a fool, an idiot, if we say, just dismiss your opinion, we begin to diminish that person's life. If it happens again and again and again, it can truly destroy someone's life. Jesus says here, I tell you, he says, if you say to a brother or sister, Racha, Racha, you empty-headed fool. You empty-headed fool. It's a term of, it's a dismissive term. We're not interested in their opinions. We're taking something from them. We're taking a little bit of their life from them. Our words can damage and destroy others. But of course, they can also release and build up others. That's the opposite. And the actions that flow out from that are in some ways just the symptom. And Jesus is not trying to treat the symptoms. He's trying to treat the underlying disease. Why do we get angry? Well, we didn't get to share the answers did we? And it'll be different for different ones of us, I guess. There are triggers in us that uh, often make us angry. But I would suggest that in many cases, it's because we feel we've been attacked in some way. Something goes against our own will. It's a clash of wills. Something goes against our will. And Dallas Willard has a phrase for this. He calls it the wounded ego. Our personal desires have in some ways been thwarted by someone else. And so we lash out at them. And the point that Jesus is making here is that relationships matter. Relationships are important. If you've come to the altar, if you're coming to communion, and you remember that your relationship with a brother or a sister is broken, it needs to be repaired, then Jesus says, you need to go and sort that out. He's not saying the relationship is more important than our worship of God, but he's saying that that damage in that relationship is hindering our relationship with God. These things are meshed together. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're offering your sacrifice of praise, and you remember that there's something that needs to be fixed. Go and fix it. 
go and seek reconciliation. It's a practical way of restoring the relationship. And then he says, if you're going to court with someone, you know, if the dispute is escalating, then go and sort it out. Don't expect someone else to sort it out. You need to sort it out with them because the situation will escalate. We have to look at our hearts. So it's a matter of the heart. It starts in us, but it quickly bursts out and relationships matter. So how do we draw all this together and how do we find a practical way through this? Well, first I suggest the point Jesus is making here about the fulfillment of the law is that we need to delight in God's law. We looked at Psalm 119 earlier. But it goes on to say that the psalmist goes on to say there that I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. If the law has not been abolished, according to Jesus, then I would suggest we actually need to know what it is. If the law is written in our hearts, do we delight in the law? Not for itself, because then again in Psalm 119, the psalmist is very clearly equating the seeking of God and the coming to know God through the knowledge of his word and his law. So study and meditation. When we come to apply the law, we remember that Jesus fulfilled the law. So some of it is no longer directly applicable in our lives, but the way we decide what still applies and what doesn't is through that question, did Jesus fulfill this? So we should be seeking to encourage one another to delight in God's law, to meditate on it day and night. But secondly, we are walking in the Spirit. We've had one prophet, Jeremiah, who said that one day God would write his law on our hearts. Ezekiel uh, also has a message from God. He, God speaks through Ezekiel to say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. John Stott put it, I think, rather succinctly like this. He says, thus, God's two promises to put his law within us and to put his spirit within us coincide. We must not imagine, as some do today, that when we have the spirit, we can dispense with the law. For what the spirit does in our hearts is precisely to write God's law there. So spirit, law, righteousness, and heart all belong together. To leave us with a picture of how that might work, let's think about old steam locomotives. Come with me on a virtual journey, just a few miles north of here. Let's go up to Arlesford, to the Watercrest Line. 
Some of you may actually have done that. The steam locomotive needs fuel for the fire to give it power. It needs that energizing power to move it forward. But it also needs tracks to direct that energy, to keep it on course, to help it reach its destination. And I suggest there's a picture of how the Spirit and the law operate in our lives. The Spirit and the Word of God coming together. The Spirit gives us the power and the energy for the Christian life. It gives us that love for Christ. But that love needs tracks on which to run if it's ever going to reach its intended destination. God's law provides us with those tracks. Rather than restrict us, these tracks give us freedom to move in a God in a Godward direction. They give us freedom to move towards God. And finally, all these things tie together by the cultivation of new habits. As we reflect on God's law, as we think about the damage that anger can do in our lives, as we ask ourselves that question, what are my trigger points? Why do I get angry? What sets me off? We can begin to discipline ourselves, to walk in ways that deflect us from those. We begin to form new patterns in our lives. We begin to practice the way of Jesus, of walking in his way. As God's spirit and God's word or law work together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your law, for your word that comes to us, that was given so that we might know more of your character. It was given to reveal who you are. It was given to reveal your desire for us that we should walk in this way. And yet, Lord, we know that merely keeping the laws is firstly not possible. And secondly, it's not going to save us. And yet graciously, Lord, you have written your law in our hearts when we come to know you, when we give our lives to you, when we acknowledge that we are poor in spirit, that we are weak and broken and need you. Lord, help us to liberate that law that you have written in our hearts, that we may walk according to your will and purpose for us, empowered by your Spirit. And that by walking in your ways, our love for you would grow deeper. And as our love for you grows deeper, our desire to walk in your ways grows stronger. Lord, it's that it would be like uh, an upward directing spiral leading us closer and closer 
to you. And Lord, as we hear these words, that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, may we not be discouraged by the impossibility of keeping the law, but encouraged by the fact that you are doing that work within us. We, we nearly, merely need to cooperate with your spirit as he works in our lives, transforming us from the inside out. And Lord, I thank you for the promise of your word that says you will bring to perfect completion that work in us which you have begun. Lord, I look forward to that day that sometimes still seems a long way off when I look at my life. But I thank you that you are perfect and that you are good. And I submit to you and the work of your spirit in my life. Change me, shape me, mold me, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.